Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Before we get started on today's show, I wanted to let you know that affiliates of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke have published three new books that you'll want to check out. If you go to the Cook Center website, socialequity.duke.edu, under our research tab, you'll find links to a revised edition of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, The Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, and A Dream Defaulted, The Student Loan Crisis Among Black Borrowers. These books are incredibly insightful and amplify our mission at the Cook Center to offer policy solutions to racial, social, and financial inequities. That website again is socialequity.duke.edu, and you'll find those books under the research tab. All right, let's get to the show. You know, together it it creates a a situation where you have a really high likelihood that a disease will spread within the facility and and many public policy approaches to mitigate its spread are, are not really functionally possible or prioritized to to create safe conditions. You're listening to Voices in Equity, the official podcast of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. The aim of this podcast is to expand upon the work of the Cook Center through continuing crucial conversations that further our research and programming. On our first podcast series, we're focusing on the pandemic divide, how COVID increased inequality in America. It's a collaborative book from faculty, many here at Duke who are committed to shining a light on inequities and truly making a difference. Today, we're focusing on chapter four, COVID-19, race and mass incarceration, written by our guest today, Arvind Krishnamurthy. Arvind is a PhD candidate in political science at Duke University, studying the political behavior and race and ethnic politics subfields. In his fascinating and eye-opening chapter, Arvin sets the scene as a prison in Marion County, Ohio, that had a massive COVID outbreak. And as it turns out, this was not uncommon. Many of the largest outbreaks of, of COVID-19 that, that, that are traced to a single location took place in, in detention facilities. And also that this isn't something that is just true of COVID-19 and, and 2020, that it goes back historically um, this is something that, that maybe if, if we, we were paying close attention to history or if, if people in, in charge were, were sort of following what the lessons that, that history provided us, that even in 1918 with uh, the influenza pandemic, there was similarly very, very large outbreaks in, in prisons. And so there, there was really good reason from the beginning of the pandemic to understand that there was a, a high chance and high probability that individuals who are incarcerated or, or uh, in residing in detention facilities had a really high likelihood or an increased likelihood of contracting a highly infectious disease like COVID-19. And that's something that um, should be factored in when we think about um, public health. Thank you. Yeah, I've really appreciated how you provided that historical context. So what initially motivated you to write this chapter? Were there any observations? Did you kind of foresee this happening? Yeah, so most of my research is not uh, necessarily in the, the public health space. It's, I, I, I sort of use quantitative approaches to, to study how 
criminal legal institutions reinforce or accelerate racial and, and spatial inequality in my work. And a lot of that is thinking through um, the relationship between these institutions and political power and the, the way that they're, they're organized such that you can directly trace the, the democratic rights and ability of, of members of, of race class subjugated communities to, to generate real democratic accountability through the way our criminal legal institutions reinforce these existing hierarchies in society or, or amplify them. And so as part of that, obviously that made me think a lot about COVID-19 when it was happening, because while it, that that is a, a very explicitly medical or, or public health issue, there are many ways in which uh, a lot of scholars in who, stu- who study these in- the same institutions I do often focus on on the way that they accelerate inequalities in in health and and in socioeconomic outcomes so things like educational attainment uh, income mental health stress and, and physical health barriers and and the way that the spells of incarceration affect people and in their communities so that that was one part of it where I, I immediately thought about the way that this pandemic could, could would really strike directly to the hearts of, of many of these inequalities. But the other was was thinking through how space matters, which is, is also, I think, important in a lot of my work. And one thing that's inherent to, I think, the pandemic was that it, it really required uh, people to have abilities that, that fall directly on race and, and and class lines that like the ability to to not be able to work from home or to socially distance and immediately it was clear to me as someone who studies these institutions and has you know spent time talking to people who, who are part of these institutions that those things were not going to be possible in in uh detention facilities and so that's a really um substantial challenge then and and many scholars who are you know, even even more deeply within these intellectual traditions, we're, we're pointing this out from the beginning uh, of the pandemic. So it was it was something I had I had my eye on, and I knew was going to be a a real challenge for society. And I, I, I w- at first was actually pretty optimistic, I think, because I thought, well, you know, this is kind of a moment of crisis where uh, it's easy to imagine political elites being primarily concerned with reducing the spread of COVID-19 um, uh, more than anything else. And so in, in that push, there would there would be mass scale decarceration and, and depolicing. And in some ways, I thought that might generate really optimistic long term outcomes where, you know, when you decarcerate at a really high rate or or depolice and reduce the inflow of individuals into detention facilities, you might imagine that longer term uh, people would see oh society is still functioning fine even as we're re- we've reduced the scope of the carceral state but it's it's not clear that that's exactly what happened or that that those reductions were as substantial as they should have been but from the beginning i there the i knew that this was uh going to be a challenge and that people were were thinking a lot about how we could use criminal legal policies to to bet improve public health outcomes for society. And I, I thought I was optimistic at first. And so that's even part of why I dove into this kind of analysis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you 
you kind of speak to that decrease in the prison population and kind of what the outcome of that was. But first, I kind of want to talk about your initial approach in the chapter, because you had to write this kind of in the midst of the pandemic. New rules and new numbers and new data was coming out every single day. How did you go about studying the ties among COVID-19, race, and mass incarceration? I know you talk a lot about the Marshall Project um, and kind of your different data resources here, but what was it like to study something while you know we were still very much in it? I'd say the first thing is just, uh, I don't know, emotionally, it's, it was like, you know, when, when everybody's like stuck at home and you're, you're wanting to do something, but maybe the modal social scientist is like, and eh, it's not like I'm a, a doc, like a doctor, medical practitioner, nurse, like a first responder, but I do, you know, I knew that the tools I had were not, not, uh, completely useless, I guess, or pointless in, in this context. So I wanted to I knew I wanted to, st- to to study something about that I felt like could Im- impact or influence public policy, or at the very least provide some maybe guiding lesson to to people moving forward. So, it in that way, like I kind of touched on earlier, it, was, it did feel a little optimistic to be able to study that this kind of question that that I, I saw real policy impact and and sort of subsequent ability to change public policy. Uh, with or or at least have people understand the impact of of these practices and then yeah with that I think because many other people were they felt the urgency to study these kinds of questions I think there were a lot of people finding ways to to contribute to to this moral and and social and political challenge that was facing everyone and so that that also made it so that like data sources like like you touched on were pretty available so now, I think there's like some words of caution, which maybe we can get into more later. But like to, in building the chapter, I, I gathered sort of three main sets of, of data and merged them to create sort of a single data set. But those were these prison uh, population counts from uh, each individual state pr- uh, prison facilities that, that came from the Marshall Project, who's done really good work both FOIAing and, and uh, get, gathering records from individual facilities to, to build out this, this data set, which, let, which told us you know, over time how many people were incarcerated in, in uh, individual prison facilities. Then I, I got jail incarceration counts from uh, a team of researchers at, at NYU that, that has um, created a, a jail data initiative. They're part of a public safety lab there. And where they've been scraping jail rosters or intake websites and and use that to build a time series that gives a, us a lot of information about the number of individuals in individual jails over time. And then I gathered data on, on COVID rates and, and COVID positivity rates in these facilities from a team of researchers at, at UCLA Law School, uh, which was like the COVID Behind Bars project. And part of the reason why that project was so important, especially, I mean, all, all of these data gathering uh, enterprises are really amazing and, and took, you know, hundreds and th- or thousands of, of uh, hours to, to, to build. But the UCLA one to me is, is what I want to highlight because it reflects a general problem within research on criminal legal institutions that's, that's trying to uh, provide important descriptive information or, or use maybe quantitative analysis, which is in part because of a lack of accountability for many of these institutions, there's 
really, really bad record keeping that's made publicly available. So many of these prisons or um, jails are not reporting their COVID-19 counts, at least publicly. There there are certainly some legal requirements that uh, might have compelled them to, to report information to to the government, but it's unclear how strictly or, or um, at what level that was enforced. And certainly there wasn't uh, a substantial amount of facilities where you could just find their information regularly. And so it required a team of researchers to be tracking this down and centralizing it and, and um, getting this information. Uh, there's a similar story that's true with, for example, police violence data. The police department's seldom, if at all, report uh, very basic information like how many individuals they have, have shot or killed in a given year. And it's researchers like myself who, who study these questions, you, you rely on crowdsourced data or researcher-generated data because the government records are so poor. So together, I, I through all those um, data sources, I was able to, to do my analysis, but that w- were the individual places where I got this information. Yeah, I want to touch on that kind of difficulty to get data, you know, especially as it pertains to policing and um, carceral facilities, because we had at the conference, Dr. Lauren Brinkley-Rubenstein and two of her affiliates kind of talked about the COVID prison project, which sounds similar kind of to the UCLA study. And now she's just joined us at Duke, but was kind of running that out of uh, Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. But they were they were kind of making the same points, you know, that when it comes to finding accurate, truthful data as it pertains to carceral facilities, it is it is difficult to find because, um, you know, when it comes to reporting deaths or illnesses or conditions of incarcerated people, you know, states may potentially break the law. They may, um, you know, the data collection seems to be very messy, which would make a project like this even more difficult. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I know it doesn't sound like maybe the kind of thing that people would would think reflects our, our, our values. But as someone who is, you know, spending a lot of my time working with these data sets, it is a reflection of like priorities in a society, right? Like with what I study, I'm, I'm a political scientist, though, you know, my work is less about like things like just like voting, but you'll never find the, it to be the case that we don't know how many people voted in it in a given election or or what the election returns are. I mean, of course, there might be some candidates who will like try and challenge that. But uh, th- these are basic inf- pieces of information that we all know and have. And of course, it's we, we wouldn't want that information to not be available, right? Because it's important. I mean, even, you know, you can find the stock price for any publicly traded company, you know, in half a second, because these are things that we think are important and they're, are a lot of institutional structures that ensure that this information has to get out there and it has to be accurate because it's important enough for the public. But we don't do that with a lot of information about people who are on the margins of society or interacting with the part of the state that has the most uh, explicit um, power behind it, which is the the carceral state. Right, And so that's that's where I think it's it's a real problem because if we want to understand exactly how being incarcerated or, or having contact with the police or, you know, in this case, how uh, COVID-19 might make its way through detention facilities, we need to have accurate and well-kept records. And, and the fact we don't, I think, is really a reflection that 
by and large, it's many, many people who, who would, would compel compliance with these sort of reporting requirements don't view it as a priority or it's not sufficiently well-funded to um, ensure that, that this is going to be the kind of information we can rely on. And yeah, it, it, it goes like, it's, it's just a rampant problem within information about, you know, different actions of, of different individual actors within the carceral state. Like there, there are police departments where you can't find out how many crimes they've solved, which is like, why would, seems like the most basic information. So how can you evaluate how good of a job these um, institutions are, are doing if you don't have the basic information? Absolutely. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think one of the things that the COVID prison project people were talking about was just like the importance of advocacy um, yeah. and just a general need to amplify the voices of, you know, marginalized populations. And to your point, you know, especially um, those who are in, you know, carceral facilities and, and in the carceral state, because everyone deserves a voice. And, um, you know, in terms of studying these things, remedying them, we need that. We need accurate data and we need accurate reflections on uh, kind of where to go from here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. So one thing you said earlier was that space matters. You know, we talk about our space in society, but also when it comes to COVID-19, space matters, you know, physically um, in terms of social distancing and the capacity to, or the ability to maintain that space and reduce the spread of the virus, which, you know, you kind of wrote about as not being as possible in uh, in carceral facilities. So, you know, going back to your study, what specific factors especially contributed to carceral facilities being a nesting ground for such a wild spread of the virus? And could you also just speak to the different types of carceral facilities? Because I think you yeah. studied on two subtypes. Yeah, the, I'll, I'll, I'll take that last question first. Which is, it's important to remember there, there are differences in in the uh, carceral detention facilities that exist. So the, the two main ones I focus on in my study are, are prisons and jails, but we, we can um, also think about juvenile detention facilities and immigration detention facilities, which are, are, are different both in the populations they serve and um, jurisdictionally how they're, they're governed. But um, prisons are, are state-run, and so they're, they're operated at the state governmental level. There are some federal prisons, but, but a very small number, but they're, um, these, these state prisons are house people almost exclusively post-conviction. So these are individuals who have already gone through the, the, um, the criminal legal process and have been either due to a, a plea agreement or a finding that of, of guilt in their, their trial or, or um, some, some verdict that required incarceration, they're, they're then placed into a, a prison facility. And then, of course, there are different security levels, but these are generally for longer term spells or of detention. And, and then there are jails, which are primarily run at the county or, or a municipal level. And, and um, one of the explicit duties, for example, of sheriffs is, is to operate um, municipal or county jails. These jails, uh, again, not exclusively, but but primarily or frequently house individuals prior um, to their trials. So so these this is what we might call pretrial detention. And so pretrial detention involves uh, individuals who who might have a, a bail hearing where uh, either a magistrate or a judge will will decide on the conditions of their release or 
or if there are no conditions and they're not allowed to be released or if or if they're allowed to be released without any restrictions prior to, to them being tried. So this is after someone might be arrested and then a trial date might be set for months uh, later. And in the interim period, that's, that's where um, many individuals end up being housed in jails. And so these are individuals who are all, in the case of pretrial detention, legally innocent. They're, you know, our, our justice system ensures that you are innocent until you are proven guilty. And so that, that burden lies on the state to prove you guilty. And before your trial has happened, you are not uh, guilty. You have, you are legally innocent. And, and many of people who are housed in jails will even be found not guilty when they go, go to court. And so it's important to remember that these individuals who are being housed in these jails are people who haven't even gone through the the criminal legal process and seen it to its um, completion. So uh, in that sense, it's a really Im- important uh, population because uh, the nature of, of the detention is more um, temporally limited, right? So because it's going to usually be for shorter term spells, then often these jails have less resources or institutionalized um, settings to, to provide things that people might need in longer term care, like like good access to to um, doctors or therapists and mental health professionals. But uh, there are a lot of commonalities across both of them, one of them being that, that they're ill-prepared to, to deal with uh, a pandemic that, that spreads um, very quickly. And, and we can just sort of think through many of the public policies that were requested or, or um, important suggestions to, to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. And, and when, you, when you identify those policies, and how they would be implemented in a, a prisoner jail, it's, it's really not possible, right? So one simple thing is social distancing, right? Keep six feet apart and, and you know, spend time to your, yourself. Don't try to be in publicly crowded or um, very densely packed areas if you, because of the way COVID-19 might spread. And that's really not possible in jails and prisons, which often operate at 100% or above 100% capacity. And that involves multiple people sharing the same cell. So, so living very, very closely together, there, there aren't, isn't necessarily space for individuals to, to go and, and for example, like eat meals or um, spend time outside of their individual private residence or detention area um, without being in close contact with other individuals. And importantly, the entire structure of a jail or prison is meant to, to maximize the surveillance of the, of, correctional officers and individuals who are in charge of these facilities. So they don't want people to be widely spread apart. It's going to make it more difficult for them to um, be able to effectively view and surveil the behavior of, of the individuals who are detained. So that's that's really not possible. Then other key suggestions are things like like personal protective equipment, right? So like where wear masks and, uh, you know, as a pandemic evolved, things like, oh, use like N95 masks. The personal protective equipment was very seldom available in in these um, facilities. Even further, there, there are these interesting political economic ways in which it's not to the benefit of uh, politicians to, to be directing a substantial amount of resources to a population that is not given many opportunities to have a political voice, right? They're 
explicitly disenfranchised in, in uh, almost every state while they're incarcerated. And th it's not as if um, people were really spent, you know, spending large amounts of time trying to understand or hear from incarcerated people. Not, of course, there are definitely reporters who were taking that um, time, but it, it meant that it was an easy place for politicians to, to direct fewer resources. And there, there, there are even circumstances where people were saying, why are you giving this uh, PPE that the state is trying to dole out to incarcerated individuals because of these sort of norms of, of deservingness about who who should get this equipment. I think those are sort of two primary reasons, but then it's also important to think about some of these like ancillary factors that affect spread, like so the underlying health of an individual. So prisons are among our our largest healthcare and mental health providers in in the United States. And so um, there, there are disproportionate rates of underlying medical conditions and, and comorbidities that might increase the likelihood that COVID is a serious illness or it can be contracted. And so that's also going to affect how, how the disease spreads. And then you also have circumstances where, where individuals are, are not residing in, in well-ventilated or um, aerated spaces. So that, that also will sort of increase the, the spread of, of the disease. And so you know, together it, it creates a situation where you have a really high likelihood that a disease will spread within the facility and, and many public policy approaches to mitigate its spread are, are not really functionally possible or prioritized to, to create safe conditions. Yeah, it seems like the lack of resources and the, the lack of kind of applicability of these policies in those facilities kind of created a perfect storm. And I know you talked about that kind of throughout the chapter. So how how was the jail population affected by COVID-19? What exactly played out there? Yeah. So, I mean, there's sort of two things that you can think about happening, which I, I show in in this um, chapter. So, so what I, I kind of do is I, I look at both how the number of people in jails and prisons changed uh, after um, COVID-19 kind of spread across country and became a, a pandemic. And then I also look at what happened to, to individuals residing in these facilities. So what is their under, what's the likelihood that you contract COVID and have negative outcomes as a result of that contraction in these detention facilities relative to the rest of the population? So, yeah, so I, I look at both those things in jails and in prisons. And so with populations, the jail population is an interesting case because we did see a reduction in, in jail populations following COVID-19's uh, onset. And, and there's like kind of maybe two main reasons for that. Like one is that a number of states issued executive orders or speed up the processing of, of individuals cases to try and just for public health reasons, primarily reduce the number of people being detained. And so there were places that that made those explicit choices. So that's one reason you see the jail population fall is these policy choices to reduce the number of people who are currently incarcerated by releasing a number of them. And that that often would would amount to things like um, deciding to to like release people a few weeks early, for, you know, maybe if their trial date was in a couple of weeks or something like that. Though this 
definitely happen more in prisons than jails. And then the other reason is it's important to remember jails are a little different than prisons because of the cycling that, that takes place, right? Because jails are, are a more temporary population and it's mostly pretrial detention. So jails are kind of reflecting the inflows that are uh, often the result of police activity, right? So if police are more heavily policing, there's going to be more people being put in jail because police are going to be on the streets making more arrests, especially more arrests for lower level offenses that result from proactive behavior rather than things like calls for service. But during COVID-19, there were really explicit orders uh, issued to a number of of police departments and internally within police department structures to, to essentially de-police. So don't don't be on the streets like having a ton of contact because obviously that carries some risk for officers and for for the the public that that these police departments serve. And also there were fewer people just traveling, being you know living their life during this time. So there's fewer interactions possible for for officers. And so with that, there's a there's a decrease of this inflow, right? Because jails are, are different than prisons in that prisons, people are going to be there for a while. But jails, you know, there's people constantly churning. I mean, there's churn in prison too, but there's really high levels of churn in jails. And as people are cycling out because they're having their trials or they're being released with these orders, there are, are fewer people coming in to quote unquote replace or, or keep this, the population size the same because of these de-policing orders. So that that did lead to a real decrease in the number of people who were incarcerated in jails uh, over the course of COVID-19. Uh, and, but that decrease was, was large at, at first, but then we did see it return, not all the way to, to pre-pandemic levels, but to close um, to those levels at you know, 70, 80% of the original population. So you do see this decrease for the first six, seven months, and then an increase back up to um, the population levels closer towards the population levels we had pre-pandemic level. And if, if I continue that time series now, my guess is it would be at very similar, if not the same levels prior to the pandemic. Yeah, I definitely want to touch on kind of how you're reflecting on those numbers in this study now, since things have changed a little bit since the book was published. So speaking kind of to the the subgroups, you know, of of the prison population, what were the what were the ties between racial inequality and what we were seeing unfold in America's prisons during COVID-19? Yeah, and, and this is a, a, a good question, and it comes back to what you asked earlier about, about space, right? Because obviously our, our prisons and jails are highly racialized, and, and we, we disproportionately incarcerate racial and ethnic minorities in, in our, our jails and prisons. So that in and of itself is going to contribute to racial inequality in the contraction of COVID-19, right? Because if if one population uh, is is disproportionately represented in our, our prisons and jails, and our prisons are and jails are going to create higher likelihoods of contracting COVID-19, then those populations are uh, racial and ethnic minorities are going to have a higher contraction rate than uh, white residents in the United States who are less likely to be. Uh, incarcerated. So that's just a, a simple sort of mathematical way in which it would increase the likelihood of contracting COVID-19 and cause some racial inequality. But there's also this feedback because um, prisons and jails are not these bubbles that are self-contained, right? Throughout the pandemic, people who were, were continuing to work in these facilities, correctional officers, medical 
healthcare providers, like sheriffs, like like I mentioned. These individuals are going into these facilities, and and for a period of time, they there were even you know community visits, like family members or friends could come visit as well. Though that you know sort of got shut down relatively quickly, but people are are coming into these facilities. And then they're going back to their community. And, and because the individuals they're interacting with in these facilities are more likely to contract COVID. You, you working or visiting or spending time there is going to make you have a higher chance of contracting COVID and, that, and spreading that to your community. So that's one other way you could see this inequality spread. But then very specifically to the question about um, race and, and space here, when, when individuals are even being... Uh, in, in maybe the quote-unquote best-case scenario, being released because governors or mayors are, are very con- concerned, or sheriffs are very concerned with with the public health limits of of these facilities, and they say we need to release pe- as many people as we we think we can, you know, politically defend or plausibly allow to to return to their homes or communities. Well, because of the racial and residential segregation of the United States. Individuals are returning primarily to highly racially segregated communities. I mean, of, of course, not exclusively, but but to some large extent. Uh, and when when we we keep in mind that that because of the, the likelihood of contracting COVID inside these facilities being much higher, you know, I estimate like four or so times higher, they're they're likely to come back, and, and there's a higher chance that they're bringing COVID with them back to an already very racially segregated communities. So that's going to create this feedback loop where there's even more racial inequality in the spread and reach of COVID-19. And so, you know, it, it, it really makes you understand how, you know, you can't think of these facilities as operating in isolation. And you certainly can't think of our communities as not being connected in meaningful ways to these facilities. And that, that is, you know, a real way that COVID-19 can accelerate racial inequality. Absolutely. And it reminds me of the conversation I had in an earlier episode with um, Keisha Bentley Edwards and Mm -hmm. Paul Robbins, who kind of spoke to the social determinants of health. And, um, you know, like you said, these aren't isolated communities, these aren't isolated spaces. So if a certain, you know, if Black Americans tend to be in multi-generational homes or segregated communities or already are disproportionately predisposed to pre-existing conditions, these are all things, you know, that exist kind of in parallel with what's happening in these in these facilities. So, you know, there's people who are in jails and prisons who, you know, already have pre-existing conditions, which, you know, makes them much more susceptible to COVID-19. And to your point, people who are released are returning to these communities that also are disproportionately affected. So um, and you kind of mentioned in approaching this study that you were optimistic how are you feeling now towards these findings and where we are today? Yeah, um, I think I think I'm, I'm definitely pessimistic about the what what I I find here. I mean, the like I said, it's it, I'm not the only person to make this kind of estimation, but you know what I, what I show is like the the sort of crude rate of of contraction of COVID nineteen in state or federal prisons is around thirty three percent, which is is saying that you know one in three essentially people are are contracting COVID behind bars when, while they're incarcerated in a prison. And that's about four times higher than, than the general population at, at, in the time frame I'm, I'm analyzing this data. And that is a really disheartening figure because it suggests, right, you, we could have reduced 
the likelihood of of contraction for you know hundreds and uh, and thousands of people by uh, allowing them to return to their um, communities and especially allowing a, a much much larger number of individuals to do that than than we we did choose to even though this was sort of in some ways an optimal moment to make this kind of change where where you know society stopped and we were at a single minded focus on on public health and it didn't happen to the extent that i think it needed to but i do think the the sort the one maybe note for for optimism or, or possibility is that there were places that understood that public health and and public policy especially criminal legal policy are are not the same right or 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 should be considered together so i think the fact that there were these real decreases in in jails and and prisons especially at first suggests that there was in jail prison population suggests that there was some movement that maybe people started to understand the way that we should view public safety and public health as as you know two sides of the same coin not entirely separate questions and so i think that that is optimistic to me but the spread or extent to which that's true i think is a maybe the more pessimistic part of that that story mm -hmm. yeah i think um the covid prison project i was pulling up their deck from the presentation at the conference and they said as of october 27th the increased covid infection rate in carceral facilities is 5.5 times so it's, it seems like it's yeah. even higher than it was when yeah. you did your study and and it was three times increased mortality yeah you know and that's and that it's showing it's not just among you know incarcerated people but also among prison staff and and to your point i think it is important to take an interdisciplinary approach to all of this and and if anything covid has certainly opened the doors to doing that because public health has even more so overlapped with with policy like you're saying i think a couple of examples i mentioned in the book but in times of crisis like we we you know i don't think society realizes it but the labor that that individuals who are incarcerated are are often you know to some extent com compelled into is is essential for the functioning of society right so during this time like in new york for example in many state prison facilities uh incarcerated individuals were the ones creating and packaging ppe and hand sanitizer even though they didn't even have it in their own facilities right so so like they're helping keep everyone else safe even if they aren't being protected themselves so making sure that we understand how connected these detention facilities are to the society around us i think can hopefully increase you know make people understand that that this isn't just a a group of people or or a facility or location that we we should just ignore and and put to the side because it's it's helping keep us us safe the work that that is happening there and and we're, you know the public is not keeping the people there safe and and especially you know the political elites are not keeping these these individuals safe and that's that that needs to change if we want to to do an effective job uh, at ensuring there's public safety and public health and and with that i think there should be an understanding that this isn't just specific to covid-19 like the the health conditions in detention facilities are are insufficient 
constantly, right? So that's that's part of why COVID nineteen spread so rapidly. But there are other diseases and and public health conditions, sanitary conditions that are insufficient that are constantly affecting individuals who reside in these facilities. So you know maybe maybe one benefit that I I hope could could happen from all the great scholars and groups of of researchers and journalists and activists is is that you know by shining a light on how insufficient the conditions are it improves um these facilities and and makes us understand that maybe you know there are limits to to what people are are going to be able to to get out of incarceration we shouldn't think of it as a a policy solution to to all kinds of problems from public health to public safety yeah i think that's a great point and um in reading that that's you know image that you painted of of these people who are incarcerated creating the resources that we all needed to be safe that they themselves didn't didn't have access to that in itself was a snapshot of inequality um and and it's heavy and um to your point you know shining a light on that hopefully triggers some change moving forward yeah yeah i I, i'm i'm with hopefully 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 so for readers of this chapter in this book I like to leave with some action items, if possible. So, you know, what are the key takeaways that you want people to have from from this, and what can we do, and where where do we go from here? Yeah, I think there's a few action items. I mean, you know, when we're speaking, we're in the midst of uh, an election. I think one important thing is to to understand that uh, you know voting matters, and vo- not just voting on. Uh, maybe the the races that we that get more attention, like you know the Senate or the House or or presidency, but these local officials, like your sheriffs, who are have a really un, unmitigated and unchecked power over detention facilities, jails specifically. That and and state legislatures who who are writing many of these laws and and making decisions about releasing individuals. Um, these these are really important elections that you can vote in to and and get informed on no matter where you live to help shape the way that that your local um, detention facilities are are run and operated and you can create you know meaningful electoral accountability in in that way i think also another action item would be to to just try and advocate for those who are who maybe aren't given the voice to advocate for themselves for a number of institutional or systemic reasons. So like there are a lot of prison letter writing campaigns that involve both uh, communication with individuals who, who are incarcerated so that they have an opportunity to share their story with you, which you can, you can spread to your elected officials, to the local community, but also um, writing on, you know, on behalf of, of those individuals to your elected officials and your, um, your community to, to ensure there is, real accountability and that um, individuals who are incarcerated are not politically disenfranchised more than they already are. So that kind of surrogacy can be really powerful in, in generating accountability. And then I think the last thing is exactly what we, we just spoke about. Don't like don't take for, for granted the, the way that a lot of the things that you might experience in society are, are connected to our the political economy of our our um, carceral state and uh, be be conscious of how that's affecting the the world around you and and um, 
and and how you should you should be sure to create meaningful uh, connections and uh, accountability for to to pro provide a more just world for people who are incarcerated because they're doing a lot to, to make your your life better in ways you might not realize. Thank you, Arvind Krishnamurthy, for joining us on Voices in Equity from the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. We mentioned the COVID prison project. Recently, Dr. Lauren Brinkley-Rubinstein, Craig Walid, and Forrest Benny from the COVID Prison Project presented at our Pandemic Divide conference. And we wanted to share a little bit of that here before we go. Okay, so here it is. We're going to talk about mass incarceration. Our group talked, um, founded the COVID Prison Project, which is one of the only national aggregators of data um, in 53 prison systems across the country. Um, so we've been documenting that. We've been taking down daily data from a number of systems for nearly three years now. We're going to tell you some of what we've found with some of those data and other projects that we have relevant to COVID. And then we're going to talk a little bit about unlock the box, solitary confinement, and the state in general. So in 2018, I went to prison for a crime that I did not commit. And I recall vividly the terror of the beginning of the pandemic. Nobody told us anything. Uh, we didn't know what was going on with our families. All that we heard was what we were able to capture on the local news at night. Food was cut down to two meals a day, friends, neighbors getting sick and dying. All of this is really important and also a perspective that is important to represent in this research. Now, I, I'm extremely fortunate uh, because I am among other things, painfully white. I was pardoned and released in September of 2020. And a few short months later, I was fortunate to join Dr. Brinkley Rubenstein in this COVID prison project. Imagine the person inside all of us, there's a fire burning. We wanna live. We wanna express ourselves. Yeah, maybe we've been incarcerated because we've done something bad, but that doesn't mean that we should continue to be punished while we're incarcerated. Incarceration is the punishment in and of itself. You hear me? So we need to treat people more humanely. If they've done something that is against societal norms that determines or demands punishment, face the punishment. But let's not continue to dehumanize people. For more on the COVID Prison Project, head on over to covidprisonproject.com. The Cook Center is named after Samuel Du Bois Cook, the first tenured black professor at Duke University who exemplified the pursuit of social justice and equality. With research focuses including social mobility, education, health, wealth, and policy, the Cook Center aims to develop a deep understanding of the causes and consequences of inequality and develop remedies for these disparities and their adverse effects. To order the book Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, head on over to socialequity.duke.edu. That's socialequity.duke.edu. The podcast music for Voices in Equity is written and produced by Karan Kareem. This podcast is edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Maddie Braxick, and we'll see you again soon on Voices in Equity.